Welcome to the 48th episode of Dialogica, a podcast between two friends about the latest in politics, society, and feminism in Indonesia and the world. My name is Sweden Lee, and Stephanie is still out this week, so we have my lovely conversation with a bright young Indonesian talent, Stanley Widianto, on this episode. Stanley is a freelance journalist who has written for The Guardian, South China Morning Post, and Tempo, among other publications. And we'll be talking with him about his journey as a young Chinese-Indonesian journalist, reporting on and responding to the current political climate in Indonesia, as well as his reflective perspectives about the future. By the way, we recorded this conversation in a cafe, so you might hear some noises in the back. Something to note, Stanley and I will be talking in depth about two of his pieces. The first one is a piece for Tirto, an Indonesian news website, and the piece is called Soarang Non Pribumi Menulis Kolomini, which translates to a non-indigenous Indonesian wrote this column. Stanley wrote this piece in response to current governor of Jakarta, Anis Baswedan's inaugural speech, where he uses the word Pribumi, which means indigenous Indonesians. The speech caused a huge amount of backlash, especially within the Chinese-Indonesian community, who has historically been discriminated upon on the basis of being quote-unquote non-indigenous Indonesians. Stephanie and I have actually talked about this controversy in our 36th episode, Anis Baswedan Makes Indonesia Great Again. So if you don't know about the controversy, you can listen to that episode and catch up. The second of Stanley's piece that we talked about is one he wrote for the South China Morning Post, titled The Day My Chinese Dad Was Declared a Bonafide Indonesian and Given a New Name, which is about exactly what it says. Stanley's dad's experience during the new order when he had to change his Chinese birth name to an Indonesian one. Listeners, I encourage you, if you can, to read these two pieces first before listening to this episode, so that you have a sense of what Stanley and I are talking about and what he wrote about. If not, certainly read them after the episode. We have links to these two articles on our website, theoligaga.id, on the page for this episode. So, without further ado, here's to it. Hey, I'm Stanley Widianto, and I'm a 22-year-old journalist and writer. I live in Jakarta, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have Stanley um, in our episode this week. Both Steph and I have been admirers of your work, writing for publications like The Guardian, South China Morning Post, and locally here at Tirto and Tempo. Now, Steph personally has said that she really loved your writing in both English and Indonesian. It's really amazing to see your work and read your work and seeing how you've covered really important issues that I think anybody who's living in Indonesia right now mm-hmm. and this current generation really need to think about. Yeah. But before we dig into all of that deep stuff, okay. um, can you talk a little bit about how you got into reporting and how you got into writing in the first place? Uh, sure. I didn't start writing. I started storytelling. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, when I was seven or something, in our house, there was this drawer full of stacks and stacks of papers, unused papers. And, you know, in, in my pastime, I would take them out and I would draw stuff on it. Um, you know, SpongeBob cartoons <laughs> filled with, like, weird stories of, you know, relevant to the video game I just played or just, like, a TV show I just watched. But it was just, like, the characters were all SpongeBob adjacent. <laughs> SpongeBob um, adjacent. We're going to make that happen. Yeah. 
<laughs> characters. So, and my dad was like, oh, you could be a storyteller one day. It was just like, I think I romanticized it a little bit, but that's what my, my memory was around that time. The idea of storytelling? The idea of storytelling, mm-hmm. was, yeah, it figured a lot in my life from that point on. Yeah. Writing, I got into writing because in high school, this could give you an idea of how late I was to the party, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, didn't really get into writing until I was in high school, so it was like 15 or 16. Um, Which, to be fair to our listeners, is only like six years ago. All right. <laughs> Not that long ago. All right. Um, but yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I started reading books. I started reading books, a lot of books, like English and Indonesian books, mm-hmm. uh, but most predominantly English. And I was like, I became like a voracious reader. You know, like I started buying books. I started going to bookstores for, for no reason, just to browse, just to surf or whatever. And and then I had this idea, hey, what if I could, you know, what if I could take a stab at this, you know, take a crack at writing, just putting my thoughts into a piece of paper. And, you know, that's what I've been doing ever since. And journalism it wasn't really as tumultuous as I remember it to be, but I told my mom that I wanted to be a novelist. <laughs> and uh, first of all, like when I told my mom, I didn't have like the faintest idea of what being a novelist entailed. So I didn't have this idea to go to an MFA, to go and get an MFA in Iowa or something. So what I had in mind is that I, I'm going to spend the entire the entirety of my 20s just being holed up, you know, in my room, trying to come up with stories. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what my idea of being a novelist was. So there was no like gainful employment <laughs> that um, that I envisioned. The fear myself. of all parents. The that, fear of all parents. There is no gainful right? employment opportunities. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I was like, and my mom kind of put me down a little bit thoughtfully. She was just being cautious, and she didn't, you know, like a reality check, right? Right. Yeah, like a reality check. Exactly. Yeah. Um, after my parents kind of talked me out of it, they didn't really talk me out of writing, but they did talk me out of being a novelist and just being a novelist and getting an English major, uh, or whatever. I thought to myself, you know, what's the next best thing? What What's a job that I could do that involves writing or editing and storytelling and you know, somehow I could still make money out of it, you know, still can make a living. So I decided, oh, journalism. I'm going to write the news. I'm going to write the news that my parents are going to read every day. Mm-hmm. And I don't exactly remember what led me to decide that, but I think it was just like, in my head, it sounded right, being a journalist. I still don't know until to this, to this day if I made the right decision, but, you know. So you mentioned that you started your sort of like your life as a freelance journalist three years ago mm-hmm. with Jakarta Post. Yeah. How has the last three years as a freelance journalist, how have you viewed the way you write and the way you cover stories and your own growth as a writer? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, sorry for like putting you on the spot and no, thinking no. big picture about your still very young career. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, for the past three years, I think the one thing I noticed is that I don't like to respond to an issue in a reactionary way. Okay. You know, let it sit for a while. Mm-hmm. Just let all the facts come in. I might not be. I'm not. I might not have a take on that yeah. issue. I think for the past three years, I went from wanting to have an opinion on everything to having an opinion on a story that I feel like is important. So a little bit more focused. It's a lot. Yeah, it's in, a lot more reflection. Fo- focus and uh, what helped me a lot was the idea of having a beat. A beat is a journalist's way of having like a topic that not only intrigues them but also that they're good at. Uh-huh. You know, like I think as this at this point, I think my beat is just like culture and mm-hmm. the arts or like history. History is plays an important role in a lot of my pieces. So yeah, having a beat helped me sort of get into the headspace of like you can only focus on a certain issue. You don't have to have a take on everything. After hearing you say that, I think that is a good reflection of what. Both Steph and I were compelled to in the first place when we encountered your writing. It's that sort of like careful reflection that isn't, as you said, it's not about being reactionary, mm-hmm. but it's about really considering the circumstances, the history, mm-hmm. everything else at play, and providing a really insightful. Yeah. And for you, I think, for some of your pieces, personal response. And as a consumer of news, I think we lose that sometimes in a 24 hour. You know, seven days, two hours, five days a year, kind of like news cycle, yeah. where everything can be responded at with a tweet mm-hmm. or like with a very short post, and nobody really talks deeply about an issue, yeah, because they just want to like let's be the first responder and then move on to the next thing, and nobody can really think about some of the deeper issues in which a lot of these events and breaking news moments are based on those issues that we need to reconcile with, we need to talk about, right? Yeah, one of the pieces that. Steph was really moved by, and I was also really moved by, is your piece for Tirto. Oh, thanks. There was a reaction to Anissa's use of the word Pribumi and his speech. Yeah. If you're regular listeners of the Logika, we've covered the issue in our 36th episode. But as a quick summary of that is that Anis, the current governor of Jakarta, used the word Pribumi in his speech, which is a highly problematic term. Mm -hmm. And your piece really tackled that issue as a response to Anissa's use of the word and also using the history and the cultural legacy of Indonesians who have responded to the issue of racism and discrimination against Chinese Indonesians who are considered non-Pribumi. Can you talk a little bit about what made you write that piece and how you piece that together? All right. Um, I should preface this by saying that that was... I wrote that very quickly Mm -hmm. because, because I just... You know, in my head, I was just like, not this again. Come on, you know. Mm -hmm. But my aim for that piece was to contextualize the dichotomy. You want to go deeper. Yeah, like I wanted to contextualize more uh, the dichotomy between indigenous and non-indigenous Indonesians. And what it really meant. Yeah, what it it really meant. But that piece originally wasn't an opinion piece. Mm-hmm. I talked to an editor at Dirto, which I happen to know, pitched him something, I think along the lines of, I just finished reading this Pramudia book, Kuwaga Gulilia, mm-hmm. 
And within it, there was this mention of this conversation, like this one tidbit in some chapter. I don't remember when exactly. But character says that do not distrust the Chinese or something along the lines of that. And yeah. I remember that like 10 years after that book came out, Ramudia wrote a nonfiction book entirely about the Chinese yeah. and about this regulation that forced Chinese families out of like smaller diminutive areas in Indonesia into cities. I think it was around 1959. Yeah. This was a time when the Chinese were still discriminated. Uh, Chinese have always been discriminated against oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> but this was a time when I guess legally it was yeah, yeah, put legally, into, legally into it was yeah, it was put on the spot. Yeah, and, um, and for our listeners, Stanley mentioned Pramuja. Uh, that's Pramuja Anandator, who is mm-hmm. arguably probably Indonesia's greatest writer. <laughs> he is to me. Yeah, he's like one of the masters, and uh, for him to write a nonfiction piece about Chinese Indonesians, mm-hmm. he himself is Javanese oh, yeah. at a time when the tension was pretty high. You know, this was before 65, right? So, it, mm-hmm. I think his book, Wakil, the Indonesia, Wakil, the Indonesia yes. was released before 1965? Yeah, it was before 1965. Yeah. I think it was around 1961. It was a serialized epistolary um, essays, like mm-hmm. recorded essays, to an anonymous uh, receiver. And Wakil means uh, overseas. Wakil means overseas Chinese. Like the diaspora. Yeah, the uh, Chinese diaspora. So uh, it means uh, the Chinese diaspora in Indonesia. Yeah. That's, that's what this book is about. So I pitched it to the editor being like, I want to write about what Pramudia thinks of the Chinese based on like his books and probably his statements that he gave to the media or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then my editor was like, "Like, first of all, we have people on staff you know, who could write this piece um, so we don't have to pay for more money. <laughs> Reality which, which check. Is, yeah, it, which, is, which is true. But, like, second of all, that's not the story that I want you to write. You can write a column about it. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a column about what Ani said. And so I did. I wrote yeah. that. And that's why I started that piece say, talking about Pramudia because yeah. that was originally, like, the lead that I thought about. And it just spiraled into, like, my commentary on recent events and just like trying to contextualize uh, what being a non-indigenous Indonesian meant and whether that's a bullshit term or not. Yeah. That was really angry, by the way. Like that piece, when I read it again, I don't usually read my pieces after they come out. So like the, like the published version, which has been edited. When I read it again, and I just like, dude, what, what got into me? You know, like, I just like... What made you write it? Yeah, yeah. It was just like, I was I was kind of angry writing it, um, but not in an emotional way, but more like in a sardonic kind of way. It was like, eloquent anger. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I wouldn't say eloquent, but like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wasn't like, oh, you're an asshole for saying this. You know, mm-hmm. like you're you should go fuck yourself for doing for doing this. Not not like that. It was just more like, here's why you're wrong. You know. Yeah. That kind of anger. Here's the context you should have considered. Yeah. When you made a statement like that in front of all Jakartans, mm-hmm. in front of the news media, in front of Indonesia, basically, right? Mm-hmm. I think that piece really helped a lot of Chinese Indonesians understand the the context. Oh, because, I hope it does. Because I do think you know this is something that Stefan and I have talked about privately within ourselves. Um, we grew up in a in a time when yes, we've seen pretty bad things like you know we've lived through 98 you have also lived through 98 i was born in 95 so i was like <laughs> you're sentient ish yeah <laughs> i was sentient yeah 
but but I do think there's a there's a generation of Chinese Indonesians that might have, through no fault of their own, have felt a bit more comfortable about being in Indonesia because they've lived past the Suharto era, right, mm-hmm. where the discrimination has at its strongest. And now as we're approaching a time when those tensions and questions start to surface again with FPI, with what happened with AHA mm-hmm. last year, um, I think a lot of people aren't quite sure how to deal with all of that and process it in a more reflective way. And I think your piece referencing Pramudia and referencing the fact that this is not a special time. Yeah. There has been a history. There has been history. And unfortunately, there there may be histories in the future. And you know, but knowing all of that helps us understand a little bit better. And as you said, not react in a very like inflammatory way or yeah, like yeah. knee jerk way. We yeah, don't want to knee jerk way. That's that's right. Like we want to react in a responsible and purposeful mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Otherwise, that we're no better than the people who just react by you know sharing fake news or like <laughs> screaming at you through social media or whatever. Right. You're writing even though you won't agree that it's eloquent anger. I think it's very eloquent anger and I think it's a purposeful anger in the sense that we need to react and we need to respond when, yeah. when people make those kind of comments, when people in power make those kind of comments. It's easy to fall into the trope of like because you write about Chinese Indonesian issues and all Chinese Indonesians are going to read your piece. Yeah. You know, because they spreads like wildfire among communities. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's the case at all. Yeah, you know, I don't think so either. Yeah, like that piece exists for people to read but I'm not sure if they have like the incentive to read it mm-hmm. except maybe for like stumbling upon it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And But I will say that like if we're talking about that piece, we're talking about Sinophobia, right? Like, the hatred against the Chinese. Yeah. Which has been wielded as a political means to, you know, galvanize people or whatever. Identity politics has always figured into our politics. So I'm just trying to point out with that piece is that hatred against the Chinese may not be as genuine as people make it out to be. Like, there are pockets of people in Indonesia that think that the Chinese are, like, taking control of the economy. Like, they're greedy and they're, like, cheapskates and they're, like, they don't like working with Indigenous Indonesians. Like, there are people like that. But, like, when you're talking about the state level, state-sponsored, or, like, in a more political sense, it's not always... I don't think it's always genuine. And that was what I was trying to convey, I think, you know? Like, maybe, maybe like, the anti-Chinese sentiments that ratcheted up during Ahok's time, the turmoil that, you know, beleaguer him, maybe the anti-Chinese sentiments were not directed at Chinese Indonesians per se. We were just, I think, used as a conduit with which to, like, I don't know, galvanize voters or whatever, because that was sort of, like, the norm, even back in, like, the New Order. Yeah. Orders regime, like Suharto's regime, like the Chinese problem, like the scapegoat, right? With the scapegoating, that was also one of the things that like gave me that idea that the Chinese anti-Chinese sentiments were just like political tool because Suharto was in bed with a lot of like Chinese conglomerates, yeah, you know, and he basically extracted them for like campaign of, donations or like a lot of state-owned enterprises, or, like, yeah, was funded and by. In exchange, he gave him certain kind of leeway to expand their business 
in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. That's why the Chinese's business acumen is most well known. You know, the Chinese are all rich and the Chinese are all wealthy and and most stereotyped, right? And like, yeah, that's that that's a stereotype. But it, they had also like legitimate roots of mm-hmm. how that stereotype came to be. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really pulled out of thin air. You know, so that stereotype was homegrown, was fomented. The Chinese have become politically convenient to bring up mm-hmm. and use uh, for whichever argument you want to make in order to galvanize yeah. the masses, whether that's the masses there for the Chinese or against the Chinese. Yeah. And well, it's usually, it's the latter. It's not the Chinese, <laughs> right? It's also like Christian or like. Um, the minority groups. Yeah, the minority groups. The, the people who are marginalized. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of political rhetoric these days have been reducing these communities into categories, mm-hmm. into ostensibly political buzzwords yeah. that can garner a reaction. Yeah. And, and I think pieces like yours does help us unpack those phrases to realize like there's so much history, mm-hmm. there's so much more complexity to it that we need to understand. Yeah. Before we start using it ourselves, or we start prescribing to a politician's views of it. other pieces that you wrote about that I think was also particularly resonating for me is your piece about your dad that you wrote for the South China Morning Post. This was written around the time of the Aho blasphemy trial. The idea for that piece, like the genesis of it, predated Aho's thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this like romantic idea of writing about myself because I First, it was just like an interesting topic, but also felt like it was important because mm-hmm. I I wanted to see if I have like a fresher take on the Chinese Indonesian lives, like yeah, giving it a little bit more of context instead of just like a personal recollection of what happened during those times. A bit more nuance, I guess. Yeah, so I just wanted to write about my family, mm-hmm. tracing like the lineage of my family, but not in a like the anthropological kind of way. It was more like a personal essay mm-hmm. on the origin of the anti-Chinese sentiments, but through the eyes, through the experiences of my family. Yeah. I had that idea before Ahok's thing, but Ahok's thing, Ahok's legal battles, uh, legal troubles, were what compelled me to finish the piece. Mm-hmm. But not like Oh, because he fueled me with power of this Chinese people are like in the news again. It was not like that. It was just more like, first of all, it gave my story a news peg, which made it a lot more easier sell to like publications. But also at the same time, like there was a greater urgency to talk about. Yeah, 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 the urgency felt a lot more fresher. Yeah. Yeah. For our listeners, we'll definitely link you to the article because I think it's a beautiful article. Uh, As a quick summary, it's about Stanley's dad's journey to becoming what you called a bona fide Indonesian by changing his name. Changing his name from his Chinese name to a quote-unquote more Indonesian name. What was it like exploring that part of the history that you didn't live through but your dad lived through? And the legacy of that because now you have his last name. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I have his name that he picked for himself. Yeah. So my given name was has always been this one that mm-hmm. I have now. But my dad doesn't really have the name that he did when he was born. Mm-hmm. The name that he that his parents gave to him. Yeah. Right? So I'm not sure if that carried a lot of baggage for my dad, but that had to mean something. Yeah. For that piece, I the original idea for that piece and what the first draft looked like, which was kind of different from the published version. I was also like involved in the editing process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the first draft looked a little bit, I would, I will say, pretentious, <laughs> um, because like I wanted to write like one of those essays or like you know Joan Didion kind of like disparate themes disparate storylines disparate scenes graded together with under one theme but they're not like straightforward yeah so my idea was it for that piece was there was going to be a chorus that a lot of the scenes in that story will sing and that was in Chinese Indonesian man went to court that's what I called my piece originally Mm -hmm. um, when a Chinese Indonesian man went to court so I was in my head uh, I I wanted to like juxtapose my dad's name change procedure with Ahok's case, yeah, because both of them went to court under different, radically different circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Ahok's thing was a little, a little bit more contentious than my dad's because that my dad went by his own volition, yep. Even though the circumstances that led my dad to change his name were also pretty unfortunate, yeah. So. I wanted to juxtapose between my dad and Ahok. And then along the way, I wanted to like write about the history of the Indochinese sentiments. Mm-hmm. But the frames preoccupied me a lot. Yeah. Which probably made me spend a lot of time on it, working on that essay. Because it was just like a, not stream of consciousness, but it was just like not a straightforward essay. One mm-hmm. that you would read on in newspapers it felt like it evolved as the story grew yeah it's almost like at least in my head when i read it it was almost as if like to use a cinematic metaphor it's like as you're panning out of the frame like more things appeared that's 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 really shrewd um yeah that's that's about right i like to use the word cinematic because that's what i had in my head too Mm -hmm. um but yeah as the piece went on, like my decision to do that was just as simple as I didn't really want to talk about myself all the time. Yeah. I wanted to pull me out of it and just like show the world that inherited that sentence from my dad. Yep. And also to some extent to Aho. Yep. Um, and maybe an extension to us. Yeah. As people an extension to us. In 2018. <laughs> and yeah. So that's what I wanted to do with that piece. Mm-hmm. The other thing too is that I wanted to I guess, honor my ancestry. Not really honor, but like at least leave a mark on it because I'm not the most sociable person in the family. Uh, I don't really talk to my cousins or like my dad's siblings because they're all like, because my dad's the last of 12, right? So his siblings are a lot more older than he is. So we're not really that close. We only meet up like once a year, but I felt like the, the urge to honor that kind of lineage by knowing something about it and then writing it of course but like the first thing was knowing something about my lineage knowing something for about you my personally history. yeah and i just happened to you know also right have a pen <laughs> yeah like uh have a have a computer to be yeah. exact um i could write an article about it but knowing something about my lineage was my number one thing that i had in my head uh before i went into 
writing the piece itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope that piece accomplishes it, but I'm, I don't know. I don't know how like materially what I could see to feel like I've accomplished that, but that's not the point, I guess. No, I, I mentioned briefly earlier that there's a generation of Chinese Indonesians, and I, and I do call myself in there as well, where we're not as familiar of the lineage, of the legacy, of the history. In your own personal journey towards discovering that, mm-hmm. as well as writing about those issues, mm-hmm. do you feel frustrated or... I guess I don't want to put any particular emotions that you feel, but how do you feel about the struggle that we have in recognizing our own history? It's not something that was always taught in the history books, mm-hmm. in, in the textbooks, yeah. right? So it is not an easy thing necessarily to find out. Yeah. For me... Personally, it's very tempting to think of racial identity as a constant struggle for recognition, as a constant struggle against discrimination. Mm-hmm. It's very tempting to think that, but also at the same time, I don't encounter a lot of like problems because I'm Chinese Indonesian. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's just like my idea of like the Chinese Indonesian plight was a little bit more impersonal. Mm-hmm. I know what what happened in '98, and it was fucked up. But I also know what happened in '65, and it was also pretty fucked up. But for me personally, I don't I don't really encounter everyday problems. But the people who look like me, you know, I can't say the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. they're probably like met people who um, on a bus that they're like, "Oh, you're Chino," mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So for me personally, I have not encountered. It, but it doesn't mean that nobody else has it as well. Yeah, or you know it doesn't mean? exist. Yeah. But in that sense, then, you mm-hmm. know, part of it is about even if you don't necessarily experience it, mm-hmm. the discrimination or the disadvantages day to day, knowing it and recognizing it and responsibly aware of it, I think it's important, right? Yes. Yeah. And also, too, like, I think my point is the divide is still there, but it's a lot less. Uh, systemic so as a result it's a lot weaker and I don't know I can't see what's going to happen in the future but that's a good direction to take you know Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find more information and resources of whatever we talked about on our website, delica.id. Music credits to John Dealey, Lee Rosevere, and of course, Broke for Free. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. And please share our podcast with your friends. It's the best way to spread the word about Dialogica. If you want to get more involved, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is dialogicapodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our Twitter. Please follow us in these various platforms. Our Twitter handle is at dialogicapod. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's stephtank. That's S-T-E-P-H-T-A-N-G-K. Thank you again and see you guys next time. Bye!